Welcome, friends, to another episode of The Human Voice. The human that I have talking to me on the other end of the microphone today is Mr. Josh Morgan, or should I say Dr. Josh Morgan. He works for a company called SaaS, and that doesn't stand for software as a service for all my business listeners. It's actually a statistical software company that has been around for ever and is a market leader in that space. So he works for a software company called SaaS. And the reason that I wanted to talk with Josh is because of what he does for SAS. He is the National Director of Behavioral Health and Whole Person Care for this company. Dr. Morgan helps health and human services agencies use data and analytics to support a person-centered approach to improving health outcomes. He's a licensed psychologist. He provides teletherapy through Marvin Behavioral Health. He was previously the San Bernardino County Department of Behavioral Health Chief of Behavioral Health Informatics. He's a member of the Board of Directors of Mental Health Services, a, which is a large nonprofit community behavioral health provider in California. And he's on the advisory board of the University of North Carolina Center for Excellence in Community Mental Health. His clinical work includes adolescent self-injury, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient programs, psychiatric inpatient units, and university counseling centers. Wow, that's a lot. Dr. Josh Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Bob. Yeah, it sounds like a mouthful when I hear it come out of somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> welcome, welcome. So you're talking to me today from Southern California, correct? I am Southern California, born and raised. That's awesome. You know, if I could live anywhere else, it would be Southern California. I actually have a son that lives there and he and his wife are, are there and working and they absolutely love it. So next time I'm out, I might look you up. That would be fantastic. Love to finally meet you in person. Okay. So, so Josh, I'm fascinated, first of all, by your, your career and where, what you've done, where you've been. And so before we get into the specifics of that, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Who is Josh Morgan, the person, where'd you grow up and love to hear just a, maybe, maybe not a hundred foot journey, maybe a 20 foot journey, 20 foot looking down on what was your, your life journey that brought you here? Absolutely. Thanks, Bob. You know, I, again, I grew up in Southern California, primarily in a small mountain town where it actually snows. People don't realize that it actually can snow in Southern California. Ski school one day a week in elementary school. We, we got out early and went skiing. I got to the point where I could go down. I, I was very proud of myself when I was able to go down the double black diamond without falling. Now it's been probably good 20 years <laughs> since I've skied, so I don't think I could do that anymore, and I've never snowboarded, so for, for what it's worth. You know, my personal and career journey, probably like many people, are fundamentally intertwined. Growing up and in high school, I was really interested in film. I, I had planned on going to film school. I wanted to be a director, super long story short. And a core part of this, which I think ties into even our conversation today, is I wanted to positively impact people's lives and the world. And my mind was film, media, huge audience, right? I mean, you know this all, all too well. But I also remember the summer before my senior year in high school, we were, our family was camping, sitting around the campfire. And I asked myself, I'm like, Josh, name one movie that fundamentally changed your life. 
Now, in hindsight, I can also talk about, you know, influences of culture and all of that and things that reinforce, but truly changing my life, I couldn't personally name that. And so that made me really start rethinking other career type options. I ended up going to UC Berkeley for my undergrad. So got out of Southern California for a bit, which I think is always a good thing for college. As a side note, college should be a time to really challenge you and grow your boundaries. And again, long story short, ended up becoming a religious studies major. One of the things that I appreciated about that major, especially at Cal, is it was in the inter, uh, undergraduate and interdisciplinary studies division. So by the time I graduated, I looked, I think I had like 20 or 30 different departments worth of courses. And, and so fundamentally giving me a multidisciplinary perspective, things like faith, religion, spirituality, we won't go into definitions of how to differentiate or overlap those today, or we can nerd out, psychology, my current field, you know, film, they touch so many parts of life that really trying to have a multidisciplinary perspective, I think is fundamental. And that background has laid the foundation for me moving forward. Even you hear today, you know, my title, including whole person care, it's fundamentally about gaining as many perspectives as we can to get a more complete, accurate picture of who we are as people. Mm, that's fascinating. Well, you're talking my language. So if we we may end up nerding out here, so it hopefully won't lose too many of my, of my listeners. But who knows, maybe that's why they listen to begin with. There you um, go. So so you you always wanted to help people. I it's interesting yeah. to me how so many of the natu- the natural progression maybe starts from, well, this is how I help people. And it might be from a religious context because I had a similar path to ultimately ending up in understanding the whole person from a psychological standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, at least the thinking processes. And, and then kind of melding that into a corporate environment. I think that's really fascinating. Tell me, as you went through that journey and as you ended up where you are now, was that something you knew you always wanted to do? Was it something that you sought or did you just kind of land there and you go, this makes total sense? Yeah, no, it's uh, every step of the way, really. In hindsight, it looks like all the pieces were were planned out and aligned like I had planned it. I had not planned it. Absolutely. Mm. You know, I I would say a fundamental principle, and I give my mom huge credit of she was always like, try everything, expose yourself, be open to what may, what door, window, whatever metaphor we want to use may open. And that is advice I now give to a lot of other people who are exploring career careers, educational programs, who are in psychology programs going, I think I want to do X. I'm like, be aware of that. That's fantastic. And let yourself be surprised. You know, the core message that I would say value that has driven my career, especially from college forward, is I wanted to give people hope. I've seen mm. that really as a, as a core value that literally saves lives and brings life physically, yes. psychologically, spiritually, go down the list of things. And, and that is where I came to psychology ultimately. And I went into a doctor of psychology, a PsyD program specifically versus a PhD in psychology, because I'm like, I just 
probably want to do private practice. I just want to do therapy and helping people very directly would achieve that goal. Pretty obviously. And I, I still think that's true. I was like, I'm not interested in teaching. I'm not interested in research. I'm not interested in administration. Just let me help people. As you read my bio, I, you can kind of chuckle. <laughs> it's right. like, uh, you know, I, until recently, I just started back up on doing some direct therapy because I think that's valuable in a lot of fronts. But I'm in the data and analytics and research realm. I teach on the side. I've been often in administration and not doing direct clinical work. Hmm. And, and again, that's an example of it surprised me and I have found value in it. And there's two main reasons for that. When I was doing direct clinical work, despite all of my training in what in my program was called family systems, really a systemic view of looking not just at an individual or even a family unit, but at culture at a variety of impacts to an individual and a strengths-based view, our healthcare systems really don't facilitate that. Mm. That is not how we pay. (laughs) Therefore, that is not the kind of care we get. And so one aspect is I very quickly saw and realized that the power of data, quantitative and qualitative, to advocate for better care, for more holistic care, for the strengths-based care that I knew we'd want that would bring hope even evaluating hope in and of itself, which we rarely ever do, though it's Mm. one of the best protective factors against suicide, for instance, that it it was one big driver for me into the career that I'm at now is I see my role as using data as an advocacy tool to promote really the things that got me into this field. The other side piece is I have also found that that driver of hope of developing people of finding ways to find your mission and meaning can actually be done more through management, through mentoring rather than direct therapy. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That is fantastic. So tell me a little more about what your daily work is on a, on a weekly basis. What are the kind of things you're involved in and how does it, spark your fire? Like what is it gets you most excited about your job? You know, my day job varies from day to day. My schedule changes dramatically. And and that's actually one of the things I really like. I can get bored very easily. I got bored doing therapy, frankly, because it was similar conversations over and over again. I, I was just even this morning talking to a state-level director of an evaluation unit for mental health statewide in a very large state and hearing her story and passion for similarly using data to identify areas that need improvement, to be able to tell the story of what is impactful, behavioral health in particular, but we, we can broaden this out to homelessness services, criminal justice type services, social services that are underrepresented, used inappropriately, not serving the right people, not being as effective as we can, to be able to highlight positive successes, to reinforce that, and to expand that for, I I personally would use the term, for true justice Mm. needs, as well as identifying opportunities of quality improvement, that is hugely valuable. When we can say, look, doing Hope-based, strengths-based, person-centered type work is highly effective. And you know what? It saves money too, overall, especially to government. I generally work with public sector agencies, usually in the United States, but I do some internationally as well. But to be able to tell that kind of story 
that directly can affect funding and policies. Mm. When we can say we are going to open up X, Y, and Z services that better support and empower people, now you're changing lives mm-hmm. at potentially massive scales. That is my core motivator mm. and what fires me up. That's great. I'm a data geek as well. And so to say that to not only work for a statistical software company, but actually be the person that highlights the, the benefit of, of it from a change maker standpoint, I think is just really, really powerful. So um, I'd love to know in, in so many environments today, and especially after the past few weir- few years, Josh, there is an awakening to to well being, to mental health, to struggles. I actually did a, a TEDx talk a month or so back about the idea of ambiguous loss, and you know what we're all dealing with. Have you found both? I know the answer is yes, but in your company and with other organizations and companies and corporations you're dealing with. There seems to be uh, an awakening to that. How it all pans out, I was just talking with someone this morning, is there's there's certainly a box that larger companies are checking off and saying, oh, yeah, we need to be about wellness and mental health and be more open about it. And then there's those organizations that are actually uh, integrating it and doing it in an, in an honest, open way. Everybody's still trying to figure it out to some level yeah. because that whole work-life balance means that the employee is responsible as much as the employer. And then once you find that balance, um, that's the magic in it. But we're all trying to do that. So I know that's a long question, a lot of dialogue around what I want to ask you is, where do you th- see things going? Where is it currently? And if you could project out two or three years from now, um, what might that look like? Yeah, a- a- excellent points. And I, I agree with you on all of them. It-, it is nuanced. It's challenging. People are figuring it out, some better than others, <laughs> right? And you know, I've also heard the term, rather than even work-life balance, more work-life integration. And I've come to really appreciate that, especially in talking to somebody, frankly, yesterday too, within SaaS, in sharing the benefits and challenges of remote work. I have been a remote worker and then I travel a lot. Um, it's worked for me. So it's not new for me personally in the pandemic, For but for a lot of people it is. And the blurred line between work and personal life is increasing. Hmm. That can be a good thing and it can pose challenges. I mean, even just for our conversation before, for me personally, work is one of the areas where I find a lot of personal meaning. I also think it's frankly important tied to this conversation that you find personal meaning outside of work, especially in American culture. And I mean, speaking as two white dudes in particular in our culture, our our American white dude culture, Jobs are important. That right. is, you know, where we're trained to find meaning. And that's not fundamentally wrong in my view. The challenge is when you tie all of your meaning and value in your career, anytime something goes wrong or changes, you're kind of screwed right. <laughs> from, from a well-being perspective. Right. So, so one aspect I, I do think from this broader conversation is recognizing that work is not the end-all be-all. 
some companies are realizing that. And, and I think it also comes back to, I, I know you could speak to this from the kind of the organizational psychology perspective, management philosophy and how we manage people and how we view them. Do we trust them to do their job? Do we empower you? Or do we have to monitor and direct every single action? That also drives, I think, a lot of the, do you have to be in the office or can you be a remote worker (laughs) kind of piece? I have seen, you're you're absolutely right. Even at SaaS, SaaS has long been supportive, I would say, of well-being, of health. I think we were one of the very first decades ago to have, an, at least in our main headquarters in North Carolina, to have an on-site healthcare facility, uh, you know, before it was the cool thing <laughs> to do. That's not the end of it all. Um, you really have to build it into the culture. One mm. of my colleagues had shared that she joined SAS a couple of years ago and within a couple of months, and she shared this story publicly, so don't mind resharing here, she started having a flare-up of a mental health condition, and she got really worried. She's in a role where she coaches a lot of her executives in communication, and she's like, what are they going to say if I need to take time off for my my true mental health Hmm. and to address this? And her story is that it was incredibly supportive. I mean, you know, this is the less than a year. A lot of the legal rules are you don't have as many protections. And they supported her every step of the way. She got time off. She's actually been promoted now. She's in management roles. That kind of fundamental value of seeing you as a human and Mm. recognizing that those, everything you bring, including some of the challenges, that is also what gives life. When we go back to data, if we are only viewing it from one particular lens of people who appear, I mean, and I truly mean appear to have no challenges and problems, you're missing a big piece of the conversation and lens. So there is room for even our company to continue to grow. I think we've made huge strides. We actually, uh, May is Mental Health Month, the first week of May and on a Friday, the entire company globally shut down for a global recharge day. And it, mm. everybody was encouraged, like, don't do work, definitely don't do SaaS work. Go do something for yourself to recharge. Not necessarily housework unless that recharges you. You know, like we're not going to tell you what to do, but actually take it. And what I thought was great too is seeing several of our you know C-suite executives posting what they were doing for their own mental health. And even our CEO closed our annual kickoff talking about the importance of well-being and mental health. One of the pieces of trends and where I think continuing to see it going to, to answer that part of the question is we need to model it. Leaders, those who are in actual power in corporations need to talk about it themselves and say, this is what I'm doing. We can have a policy to take a mental health day or whatever you want to call it. But if your bosses never take that themselves, nobody else will. Yeah. And so seeing that and modeling that at the beginning is foundational. Yeah. So yes, I, there's a lot in that. In yeah, that no, 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 there. that's great. I I love that you, that you kind of wrap that up with modeling it because everyone's trying to figure out policy and just, I've seen so many studies and you know, what I, what I see when it comes to the whole work-life integration. And I like that the way you said that 
is it seems to be the studies are showing that a hybrid model seems to to work best, meaning that there's a value in coming together for some period of, of, of the week to have that sense of community and teamwork and creativity, but then also having the freedom to go away and, and have that work, work from anywhere type model. But all of that doesn't really matter. And all of the policies if, is if it's not being modeled from the top down. If the CEO of the C-suite is there from seven to six o'clock every single day and working on weekends, it really is kind of useless to to integrate policies for everybody else. It just doesn't work because like anything, whether it's a family, whether it's a church, whether it's a business, the, the leaders set the tone and people will take on the characteristics and habits of Absolutely. who they're being led by. So I love that you said that. I would love to get real practical on some of that. And maybe you can cite some studies and some data but how do we do that as leaders sometimes like how do we how do we lead well in that because we're coming so many of us are coming to a paradigm shift of well we've never done business that way before it's not in our dna and especially if we any of us have any type of type a tendency at all <laughs> it's really Definitely. hard and we actually like it we think we do we like going to work and working 8 9 hours a day 7 days a week talk to me you about check that check the boxes of look i was successful right exactly I, I i am i am that way i mean i know my wife and i have talked about this several times she was uh, studying animation, and we've had multiple conversations. I mean, still love the, the film industry and the creativity and the behind the scenes, but both of us have said many times, if that is where our careers actually were, we would probably be in the, you know, the quote unquote workaholic phase. I could see myself going down that so easily. So I have to be very, very intentional. And I think that's one step of it is being aware, being intentional, and finding ways to step away, but finding what works for you. Mm. What works for you, Bob, isn't necessarily what works for me as Josh, right? That's good. Nor my wife. And so maybe a day away, you know, I go back to the recharge day, having a complete day away is really effective for some people. And for others, you know what, maybe it's, I need to take an hour each day, but doing an hour of work seven days a week actually may be more effective for me personally, I think that flexibility is important. So, so going back to your perspective of, of policies, I think we, you know, there is a there is a role for policy to formally sure. give permission and HR type guidance, but sure. the modeling of expectations. And, and you know, there's another theme that often comes up of, of the phrase of "it's okay to not be okay." We need to demonstrate that. So, as as an example, uh, a few months ago, there was just. It was one of those weeks that was just, it was a rough week for me personally. I don't even remember all the things that happened by Friday. I had found out like three people I knew had died, um, you know, for all different reasons. Um, some long-term illnesses, some acute, one was a surprise. It, it doesn't really matter. That is hard. Right. And, and when you have, sometimes there's just those weeks where work projects are just hard, right? This is part of life. And I realized that I'm like, I'm, I'm not in a great place. And you know what? With social media in particular, 
it is notorious for only posting the good things in life. <laughs> and we need to be able to also demonstrate that life isn't always peachy. So I, yeah. I have a, a little, I have a shirt with Snoopy on it and it looks like he's exhausted. It's just like, nope, not today. So I took a picture of that and I just posted a thing on a, on a Friday afternoon saying, this is just, this is how I'm feeling today. It's just one of those, I'm done. I'm over it all. I'm tired. And you know what? That's okay mm-hmm. to be able to say that because that is real. That is yeah. everything. So one, not to really push myself up, but as, as an example, I, I remember there was a book of called the gift of going first. And that is something as leaders we can do go first to be able to say, look, I'm struggling here. That gives other people permission to be able to do that. The other piece I'll throw out is my boss, um, Sarah Newton saw that texted me then on her own and go, Hey, is there anything you need? What can I do for you? Mm. Anything you need to chat? That in itself, she didn't have to do that. It was after hours, her time. Um, She's on the East Coast. I'm on the West Coast. I think I posted it pretty late. Talk about being able to model and demonstrate care, Mm. compassion, true interest for your employees. You know, and, and this wasn't any major crisis for me where I needed an intervention per se. Though, frankly, if you need that, that's okay too. Accept the help, right? That is part of many people's journeys in life. But by being willing to share my experience of, I'm not in an okay place today, that also opened up the ability for others to come and care for me. Mm. And how powerful is that? I mean, clearly that has stuck with me and, you know, just put on a very classic corporate hat that builds corporate loyalty (laughs) from the employees, right? Um, It builds trust. It builds, builds engagement. Those are hugely valuable things, I I believe, in really being able to lead on both ends there. Yeah, that's good. So we talked a little bit about leaders modeling. What advice would you give to someone who might be listening to this that says, you know, I love listening to this podcast. I love what Josh is saying, but I don't have leadership that models it how can I be a catalyst for change in that environment? Yeah. And, and that's difficult and, and it's real, right? E- even in a company, I'll, I'll use my own, like SaaS, there are probably divisions where people struggle a little bit more. We're a large, you know, 14,000 people globally. I- I'm sure policies are not implemented consistently right. all, all throughout or, you know, with different managers and conflicts within teams. You have to be cautious because, We cannot dismiss the reality of stigma and discrimination when it comes to any of the things we're talking about, mental health, mental illness, substance misuse, um, you know, other culture, racism, let's go down our, our list of everything that kind of starts being combined into this realm. My go-to would be kind of the same theme of if you are able and willing, and it is safe, there's a lot of caveats there to share your own journey, you start modeling that, that's what helps start creating a safe place. Even if you're not in a position of formal power, that is not necessarily what leadership is. And I have remembered that. And I think it's very important for others to remember, just because you have a CEO title, for instance, doesn't even necessarily mean you're a leader. 
Yes. Somebody who doesn't have any direct reports, maybe a more significant leader. So you can have influence. And, and again, I think modeling, being willing to share, sharing how you can navigate things and being there for other people. If they're struggling, being able to be a safe place, yeah, that is valuable. Everyone can, and I would say should do that if you're in the right place. There's the time when you need that. And not all workplaces and coworkers and bosses are safe. So there is a very realistic place of you may not be able to do any of that and have a safe job. Mm. That is reality and that is unfortunate. And some jobs you just may not be able to influence and change. And I would dare say you may just have to change jobs. Mm, that's good. I want to talk a little bit about stigma because I know in organizational psychology, we talk a lot about stigma around mental health issues in the workplace. And so much of it is dependent on culture, environment, whatever the, the, the vertical market of industry you might be in. It could be location, geographic, socioeconomic. We could go on and on. So there's so many factors to stigma of, of mental wellness in the workplace. From your studies, from some of the stats, data that you're working with, how much of it is a still in stigma, still an issue in let's just say the USA. We 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 can't talk sure. about other countries necessarily at this point, but in the USA, and how is it changing or how has it changed in the past, say, five, 10 years? It is still present and it is improving. And there's a lot of room to grow. <laughs> it would be my short answer. As you can tell, I don't give short answers very often, especially on some of these. This topics. is a podcast, so long answers are great. There you go. You know, the fact that we're willing to talk about it hmm. and acknowledge, I mean, I'm even thinking the the tragedy, the tragic death of Naomi Judd recently hmm. as a high profile example. The fact that the Judds were willing to say she died of mental health of mental illness. I forgot the exact framing. You don't hear it framed that way very yeah. often, but yeah, yeah, you can die from the illness of mental disorders, whatever term we want to throw on it. Right. And, and even when Ashley came out and spoke on behalf of her family, I, I cannot fathom how difficult her speaking and sharing her own journey and what happened with her mom could possibly be. And to combat stigma and discrimination and to talk about the power of giving access to care. Mm. I am confident in doing that. She and her family have saved lives. Yeah. I am eternally grateful that they put themselves out there and were willing to share their grief and their honesty. And, and I kind of go back to even just hearing parts of her conversation and sharing her process of that kind of the, the same theme of I'm struggling. I'm not okay. Yeah. These are all the things I have to remind myself. I mean, this is a, by every definition, pretty much a massively successful family, right? And they had relationships with each other. Not always true in all media families, right? Like that is fantastic. 
Yeah. And you can still be struggling. That is a way to start combating, I believe, stigma and discrimination, that these are not either ors. I think a foundational idea of stigma is it's either you are great and healthy and wonderful or you're down in the dumps. And it is just simply not true. Half of people at some point in our lives, we will meet criteria for a mental health diagnosis. Most of us won't be diagnosed. Most of us won't seek help. But half of all people will meet the criteria for it. If that's not massive prevalence, I don't know what is. Yeah. And that's not even talking about the, the struggles people have. As we move forward, I think also being able to just have this be a natural part of the conversation and a strengths-based piece. That, that it goes back to some of my work and where my passion is, is that actually in a data world, even we can unintentionally contribute to stigma and discrimination mm. by asking limited questions about data and outcomes. For instance, classic outcomes around mental health are rehospitalizations, criminal justice, recidivism, homelessness. These are things popping up in the news all day long. And what are the mental health connections? If the only metrics and outcomes we measure are, for instance, those three things, then we also kind of are implying that mental health is fundamentally tied up in hospitalizations, criminal justice, homelessness. And that's just fundamentally not true if you really look at the data. What we need to do is start broadening out the definition. Those are not bad outcomes. They are important to consider. But what about social support? Go back to what about hope? What about meaning? Can we also help empower our health and social services systems and validate that they actually provide hope, that they help us reconnect with family members, with loved ones, with friends, and that that is a foundational treatment approach? We need to tell that story as well. And I believe that is also how we start combating stigma and discrimination I hope and pray that we will continue to see that it, with, with your part of the question of what do we see moving forward? I, I think we are seeing more interest in looking at more holistic data, both from identifying needs early, as well as looking from an outcomes perspective. And I think we all need to push ourselves to look outside of the pathology box as well. Mm. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. I'd love to hear a little bit about the, you've mentioned it a couple of times, the data that you've had, that you've discovered or researched yourself, or at least interpreted around this idea of hope and why it's important. I myself, and I've shared it openly on the podcast, have had times in my life where I've struggled with suicidal thoughts and been through some really, really dark times. And now on the other side of it, one of the things that I can identify as there's no worse place to be than feeling like there's no hope for the future at all. And yep. once you have gotten to that yep. point, um, and for those people who have experienced it, it it is it's a it's a weird place that you never want to go back to, and it's the hope of having a reason to live. And this is why Viktor Frankl's work has been so influential to me yes. is, you know, you can find hope and a reason to live in any, almost any, in every situation, no matter what it is. 
But when you have given up or lost it or can't find it, whatever reason, that is the beginning of the end, downward spiral of the end. And, and for a man like Viktor Frankl to go through the Holocaust and find and observe people finding hope, it's just mind-boggling. But I yep. think the, the 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 proof of that is so many people who have. So I, I've said a lot there, but I want you to to talk a little bit about what your 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 findings are from both a, a scholastic standpoint and a professional, but also I'd like to boil it down to real practical too, if you would. Absolutely, I, and and I am so glad you brought up Victor Frankl. I he is my heart and soul <laughs> at the core of my theoretical orientations and psychology. I, I love his work for all the reasons you noted. You know, I also want to nuance some of that and emphasize that, you know, I agree. I, I personally believe that hope is possible in probably every situation. And it's not just a matter of willpower to find it. Absolutely. That's another key piece that I think can also contribute, frankly, to our prior conversation of stigma and discrimination of, right. you know, when you hear of a story like Frankel and others and, and, and frankly, you know, people in Ukraine and such of in very difficult circumstances, finding deep meaning and hope. And then others of us, that could almost make us feel more hopeless right. when we're in a dark place and we're like, I don't have it nearly as bad. Well, I'm an awful, horrible person even more. No, it is, there are, it is a very nuanced and difficult conversation. And that is, you know, I go back to just thinking recently again of Ashley Judd's description of her mom of she just couldn't see it. And she was about to get inducted into the hall of fame and I'm going to, I'm, this is Josh putting words on, I'm guessing she didn't have hope. Right. You know, who, <laughs> most of us would be like, how could you not? That is the weirdness and nature of not just mental illness, but existential angst, <laughs> hopelessness. It is difficult. And that is where I believe social support and our culture and society together, it is our job collectively to help provide a vision for hope. It's one of the things I'm a big Star Trek fan. And a key part of that is it provides a hopeful vision of the future. That's what a lot of people really love about it is it can keep us going, especially in the dark times. And there are dark parts in the stories of that. I also appreciate the uh, kind of moral and ethical dilemmas in there. But I think that that's a key is when we're facing challenges, how can we find a way to move forward? To your question, kind of from that scholastic view and, and such about hope, I mean, talking about suicide as one key example, hope is one of the best protective and hopelessness, one of the best predictive factors Yes, suicide. And it is also worth noting that I, I believe the stat is, if I'm remembering off the top of my head today, <laughs> um, only around 90% of people who die by suicide have a mental health condition. Hmm. Now, that may sound like a lot. But I think most people assume that it's 100%. That indicates that you don't have to have mental illness to want to die. Right. I connect that back to hope and hopelessness. Hmm. Um, if we don't see ways forward in life, and 
this can get back to national, international, statewide, local company policies. Look at uh, you know certain groups in in our communities. The LGBTQ plus population has huge rates, much higher rates of suicide. There's a lot of complexity, so I do not want to simple oversimplify it. But I also think hope has a place in that. When there's policies, when it's I don't see a place for myself in this world because of legal policies, why would you have hope? Right. Why would you want to live? I, I mean, I, that's kind of going to down a dark place, but it's also important to validate and understand if you have never been in that position to understand how that may appear to someone else. Hope, death, meaning, highly complex, highly nuanced. But I also find the deepest value is in the day-to-day life, the mundane things in life. That is where I personally find hope. So kind of that, that practical piece. I've got these grand visions of providing hope and changing policy and advocating for things. And I would love to see massive change and, you know, statewide and national levels to improve behavioral health. And hopefully I can be a piece of that. But we're all cogs in the wheel, right? (laughs) We could all be replaced in any corporation, regardless of how special we feel. And that could lead to hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And I go back to, at the core, what is life about? So I'll share two things and and then I'll shut up again is one, one book that really helped frame things for me is uh, Richard Foster's streams of living water. I don't know if you are particularly familiar with it or or listeners are uh, is a way of kind of parsing out in, in my view, parsing out different kind of cultural traditions almost with specifically within Christianity. And, And I have often found that even if our theologies look alike, sometimes it feels very different in how we approach things. And, and to me, I felt like Foster's framing of these streams helped illustrate that. His description of the incarnational stream really hit home for me personally. And it really is about seeing life, seeing hope, seeing meaning, finding spirituality in everyday basic activities. And it connects right back to what is hope and what is meaning. I have a friend of mine whose grandfather I knew growing up, found very, very meaningful, internationally famous, impacted lives, impacted my life. And I lived with my grandpa for in, in grad school. And from a career perspective, he sold many, he was a World War II vet. He ended up getting, he was in art school and then got a job when they were pregnant with my uncle and he sold many blinds, you know, not not a quote unquote, sexy, meaningful career. And and I have thought back many, many times of like, if my grandpa was the internationally famous one who has made legitimate impacts, would I love him more because of that? And my actual answer was actually, I'd probably love him less because I probably wouldn't get to see him much and have a Mm. deep relationship. Do I love my grandpa any less because he sold mini blinds? (laughs) then wrote global bestsellers? Not at all, because he was present with me Mm. and I was present with him and we were part of each other's lives. And I try and remember that too, even when I'm in 
midst of, I have to do X, Y, and Z, and I have to get all these things. And I've got these grand plans and I've got this angst of seeing my kids being kids playing, running in our front yard with our puppy, sometimes making too much noise than I would like, but then taking a moment and seeing, look at the freedom and the joy and look, we're here together. Mm. That's where the meaning is. This is good. This Mm. is hopeful. That's what helps me, at least personally, really in that incarnational view of hope, of meaning, of life. Mm. That's really good. Josh, thank you so much for for spending this time with me. I would could probably keep going for another a couple hours, but we only have a short window here. And so I want to use the rest of the time just to talk briefly, if you would, about you know how people can follow you. They can maybe if you've if you've got other social media or if somebody has a question, I, I think certainly you have a lot of of wisdom and, and experience up until this point in your life that you can certainly offer someone. How can people find you? Yeah, thanks so much. LinkedIn is one of the areas I am active on. You can search, look me up. It's at Dr. Josh M is the little tag. I, LinkedIn calls it something different. I'm at Dr. Josh on Twitter, on Instagram. I'm Dr. Josh M also. So it should be fairly easy to find me and feel free to connect with me and you can DM me directly on any of those if you would like as well. Yeah, yeah. Before you leave, I, I want to start. I want to start instituting a new thing uh, on the podcast. Two books that you would recommend our listeners to to read. So many that could be good. You know, I, I since I was just mentioning it, Richard Foster's Streams of Living Water. I was introduced to it in graduate school. Really like that one. And you know, since you brought up Viktor Frankl. I think his can be very powerful. Man's Search for Meaning is his most famous one. It's meant for kind of a popular audience. It's what, 100, 120 pages. So it's actually pretty short. He has several other books, which I actually think are a little better, but they're also aimed at providers and clinicians. But a lot of his stuff is good. There was actually a documentary of his about his life. I am blanking. I think it's called Victor and I. And I believe it's actually even streaming on Amazon Prime and possibly others for free. I highly recommend Mm. that one as well. So getting outside and getting a little bit more of uh, other media options besides reading as well. And last question, what are you you watching on uh, uh, streaming at night? What series are you on (laughs) to? Well, Star Trek Strange New Worlds, as of this recording, uh, has just come out, and I'm really happy that it is kid-friendly, too, so I can watch it with my kids. I grew up watching Star Trek. Uh, I love all of the new ones. There's a lot of haters out there, but I love them, but some of them are not appropriate for the kids, so my wife and I watched them. So uh, that is one of them. Uh, in my work time, I've just been exposed to The Expanse, so mm. I'm starting to watch that. I think I'm in season two now. Um, so, so there's a good, and, and actually we introduced the kids. We were telling them about the old, the old school, uh, reality show of the mole. Um, so oh, yeah, we actually bringing that up from like 20 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of most reality. I get bored with it, but that is, that's one that, that that's fun. So we're, we're going through season two right now <laughs> of that. That's awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy there at SAS, but I appreciate you taking some taking some time off today and talking to us. And we look forward to following you and see what the future may hold for you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and having these important conversations. Absolutely. Keep up the good work. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.